Good afternoon, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to be here again doing another sermon. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Jono, and I'm going to be continuing the, uh, the sermons we've been doing, a series we've been doing on First John. So if you remember last week, we were looking at uh, a lot of the tough topics. Uh, Sam uncovered uh, such topics as, such as the Antichrist. Uh, and if you think last week, John has some strong language, where well, he steps up his game this week. And he goes from Antichrist to being, well, pretty much calling people children of the devil. So it is intense. There's a lot of content and uh, there's a lot to cover. I don't believe we have any announcements for this week. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 2.28. And we're just going to go from the end of chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3. So from verse 28 of chapter 2 to verse 10, as they try to get the slides up, or less scrambling at the back, <laughs> to chapter, uh, sorry, verse 10 of chapter 3. Hopefully they have it running before I finish my, my passage. So it says in verse 28, And now, dear children... Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right, what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we, know, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall, be, for we shall see him as he, as he is. All who, have, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him or in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or, or and sister. Let's have a quick pray, and then we can uh, see what we can learn from this passage. Uh, yeah, Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much that we can, we can come here today, Lord, enjoy fellowship, enjoy your word. And what a blessing it is to have the direct word of God at our fingertips to be able to learn what it means to be a child of God and, and just have, have the full knowledge of the position that you've given us, Lord. And that position which was only given to us as a gift through the atonement that your son has, has made for us. I thank you so much for the sacrifice he made on the cross and, and the change through the lives uh, of each and every one of us. Uh, without you, nothing is possible, Lord. Without you, none of us could enjoy a connection to you. I thank you so much, Lord, that you've made a way when there was no way possible. And I just pray, Lord, as I, as I go through this passage, our, our hearts can be open to your word, it can penetrate it deeply, and that we can be convicted by it. And the Spirit can work in tangent with your word, Lord, uh, in order for it to produce tangible changes in our lives. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Next slide, please. <laughs> and so this, this passage is in some sense, like a test of what it means to be a child of God. 
And it, I break it down into three very simple aspects. My first one is who's your daddy? As, as, you, as you can probably see, as you can probably see in this passage, just because you come to church, just because you pray or read, it doesn't necessarily translate into you being a child of God. It isn't that simple, isn't that straightforward always. And the next point I have here is, are you driven by desire or duty? If you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes you, you, you go from that point of desire, of love, serving and being obedient, because you know what? God has done so much for you. And then you start to drift into this realm of, I, I'm obeying because it's my duty. I'm obeying because that's what I'm told to do, to commanded to do. And the motivation behind why we obey is almost as important as obeying itself. And the final one here, I, uh, the final point I have here is, do you yearn for his return? And this is, a, this is a, a huge element of this passage. It seems like John frames the entire passage around the promise that one day Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, it has radical implications for who, for who the, the children of God are. It reveals us. It shows us for our true nature. So let's, let's take a look at this really quickly. Uh, hopefully, this, oh, so next slide, please. So if, if you notice in the passage here, uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of references to, to family. I think 12 times across 12 verses, he makes a reference to family. So in verse 28, he says, Dear children, verse 29 of chapter 2, born of him. Verse 1 of chapter 3, great love the Father has lavished, children of God. Again in verse 2, children of God. Verse 7, dear children. Verse 9, born of God. Then God's seed, children of God. It has this whole family aspect to the passage. That's because John is trying to help us understand that if you are a child of God, then the Father and his character has important implications on your life and what you look like. And... In, in the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 12 to 13, you have to turn there, but it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And if we're born of God, then we, we should take on some of those tendencies. I mean, biologically, John is drawing a parallel between our biological uh, 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 principles and the, the spiritual principles. I, I, I do teens for, uh, for the church, and I can't help but notice a lot of the teens tend to take on some characteristics of their parents. It's true. Some, some of the parents are like, ooh. But it, it's true. And I remember just the other day, uh, I went to a family gathering of my own, and, and Pam came along, and and we're just having a discussion in the car. And, and Pam made a comment uh, in the car about my dad. She said, oh, gosh, I can see where you get your strong, direct, and abrasive language from. And I was like, oh, God, that's kind of harsh. And to be honest, I was quite defensive about it because I don't like those characteristics of my dad. But the irony is, in my defense, I found myself using strong, direct, and abrasive language. It's, it's, just, it's funny how that works out. We tend to take on the tendencies of our parents. A child takes on the tendencies and the character of their mom or dad. In the same way, John is reinforcing this point. If you want to be a child of God, then you better be taking on some characters of God, or characteristics of God. And 
I, I, think, I think Aristotle, he, uh, he made this quote here. It says, he, or he says, give me a child until he is seven and I will show you the man. And Aristotle's making this point that dude, in those first few years of a child's development, you can have a pretty accurate depiction or, pre, or make a pretty accurate prediction of where they're going to turn out. We're children of God. We've got to take on some of those, some of those characteristics. Uh, next slide, please. I was trying to think of uh, a guy who embodied this child of God uh, uh, quality. And, and the guy who came to my mind uh, uh, initially was Eric Liddell. And if you don't know Eric Liddell, he's, uh, he was a, a Scottish athlete and uh, obviously a Christian as well. And he, he was world-renowned because he took a stand during the Olympic Games. He was a Christian. He had Christian obligations. And unfortunately for, for him, his race, his 100-meter race, which he was, I mean, surely going to win. He was by far the favorites. It fell on a, a time where he had obligations to church. And so he takes a stand. He says, I'm not going to run that race. His, his Olympic ambitions came second to his ambitions of Christ. It's just that radical mindset he had. And the cool part of the story is that he goes on, he, he competes in a different race, the 400-meter race, and he wins gold. I and mean, that really solidifies the, the, the power of the story. And then later in life, he goes on and uh, he becomes a missionary uh, to China. That's where he later dies. And it's an incredible story. I encourage you to read up on him. Um, but the real question is that where, where does that conviction come from? Where does a man like that have the conviction to be a missionary to China and to give up his entire ambitions for the sake of the church? Ultimately, it's because his father was God. There's this really cool quote that his, um, uh, after, after Liddell died uh, at the memorial, his friend made this quote, and describing a Liddell, he says, uh, Liddell is literal, Eric Liddell is literally God-controlled. In his thoughts, his judgments, actions, words, to an extent I have never seen surpassed and rarely seen equaled. Every morning he rose early to pray and read the Bible in silence, talking and listening to God, pondering the day ahead and smiling as if, he, as if it was a private joke. I mean, Eric Liddell embodied the man he followed. He took on those characters, characteristics. And that's what we have to do if we want to be a child of God. So let's look, at this, uh, let's look at this passage and see the specific characteristic John is drawing our attention to. And so there's, there's two characteristics uh, that I really want to point out, and that's righteousness and purity. And we'll look at some more a little bit later, obedience and love. But for this initial section, those are the two I really want to focus on. And so 1 John chapter 2.29, it says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. That's the most fundamental aspect of being a Christian, being a child of God, doing what is right. Yes, it gets a little bit more complicated than that, but gosh, I mean, that, that's how that, really, that's a simplistic aspect of Christianity. Christianity. God has outlined what is right, and it's up to you to do it. It's obedience. And the, the point that John is really trying to make with this statement is he, well, he's addressing all these there's different oppositions to the church. And I'm sorry if you weren't here in the previous weeks, but we've, we've spoken about the Gnostic, uh, the, the Gnostic opposition. And, uh, and these people who are kind of separated themselves from church and that they, they view the ultimate standard of what it meant to be a child of God 
is having knowledge. I mean, Gnosticism, Gnosis, means knowledge. And for them, if you, if you knew stuff, that, that's what distinguished you from it, from, from the rest of the world. But, 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 but John is trying to make a point. It's not about what you know. It's about how that knowledge is translated into action. It's not about what you know. It's about how you obey, which radically sets you apart. And you might, I mean, you might come to church every week. You may come to church year after year. You may read the Bible frequently. You may, you may do all these different things. But if, if, if you don't live out your faith in, in the in-between periods, I mean, if you come to church on Sunday, then Monday to Saturday, you're, you're doing whatever. If your life really is a reflection of what you want, your own ambitions, then you are not living out an obedient, child-of-God-like life. You just aren't. So what does your life look like outside of church? Does it look like what it looks like inside church? Do you have a bit of a disconnect? It's a bit of a separation between the two. Now, if I encourage you, if, if, if there is, I mean, you get to start looking at that very soberly, okay? Because a life of sin cannot coexist with a life of God. So one of the dominant themes in, the, in, in, in John is that light and darkness will not coexist. Darkness cannot come into the presence of light. It just doesn't work that way. And uh, I mean, there's, there's a couple, uh, there's, there's a passage here in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear children, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You've got to cast off whatever it is that's holding you back from being a child of God. Whatever it is that's getting in your way, you've got to take it off. And so that's the characteristics of, of, of God we want to look at. That's what we want to be. Let's, let's take a quick look, as you can see on, on the board, at what we don't want to be, okay? And that is, of course, being a child of, of the devil, which is, oh, gosh, if anyone's called you a child of the devil before, I mean... Don't take that lightly, okay? That, that's a heck of a slap to the face. And I'm not brave enough to call anyone here a child of the devil. But I'm hoping that if you are a child of the devil, you hear this message and you're like, oh gosh, maybe, maybe I need to change, okay? And so it says there in 1 John chapter 3, uh, uh, 8 and 9, uh, John says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because this devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. And when I, obviously when I first read this passage, I mean, it's, it's convicting, right? It makes you look at your life quite, quite soberly. Oh, gosh, in what areas of my life am I sinning? And even in preparing this, uh, the lesson, I'm like, oh, gosh, I've got to make sure my life is in check. I want to make a distinction, first of all, though, okay? He's not talking about, he's not saying that a Christian never sins. And that's ludicrous, okay? I mean, if you read, read the previous chapters of John, you find out, but if you were to claim that you don't sin, that's negative, okay? Because we all sin. The claim that you don't sin is to make, making out God as if he's a liar. So it's not if you sin, but he's talking about a pattern of sin in your life. Like that, that Monday to Saturday, okay? What does your life look like? And if, heck, if, if you're living a pattern of sin, then you have a lot, of, lot in common with the devil. And what I find most interesting here is 
the way the, the Gnostic opposition to the first church were operating, they, they weren't straight up rejecting Jesus. They weren't saying, oh, Jesus, he, he isn't real, he doesn't exist, as you might hear nowadays. They took Jesus and they distorted him. They removed his humanity. They, they tarnished his character. And they presented him as something different. And when you think about it, isn't that how the devil works? Adam and Eve in the Garden of, in the Garden of Eden? Is that what God really said? Did he really say you couldn't eat that apple? Jesus in the desert being tempted? Satan comes at him with scripture. This is, this is what the word of God says, kind of. That's, that's how Satan operates. He, he twists and he turns stuff. And that's one of the key elements of, of, of a, a, a chart of God that we have to be mindful of. Is that you may hear the word of God, you may read the Bible, but a, a, a child of Satan ha, has a habit of twisting it to be convenience, twisting it to fit into their lives. Yeah. And we, we also we've got to be careful not to be doing that because when you start twisting and 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 conforming the word of God into your life then you completely nullify the effectiveness of the word. Is there an area of the Bible, a command in the Bible, which you kind of turn a blind eye to? Which kind of shift to the sign, I'm not, I'm not really down for that. I'll obey the rest of this. But this here, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really into it. I mean, what part of the Bible are you not adhering to fully? What area of your life are you kind of keeping disconnected from your professed faith? We've got to be careful that we aren't, we aren't doing this because we are going to be declared a child of Satan, the father of lies, okay? And we, we don't want to be people who are living a lie. That you say you believe in one thing, but the rest of your life is completely different. And really, the, the way we distinguish between a, a, a son of Satan and a son of, a son of God is that we need to look at love. And that's really my next point here. Is the crux of my next point is that what are we driven by? Are we driven by desire or duty? And you'll find love is at the heart of what drives someone who desires to obey. That's why here John starts this section in, in verse 1 of chapter 3 with love. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished onto us. And then, interestingly, he ends the section with love in verse 10. He says, uh, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And so John is using the structure of the passage to help us understand that love is the beginning and love is also the end. But also he uses that the beginning God's love and he, he says that should naturally flow into, into through your life and be expressed to the people around you and also back to God as well. Love, love is a central, the central uh, focus of this, of this passage. And the way, and, and John's incredibly smart in the way he does this. He, he takes, he takes the, the, the past events of Jesus, Jesus being crucified. You see there in verse 5 and verse 8, uh, he talks about the appearance of, of Jesus appearing in the past. 
And the reason he's doing this is because he's trying to help the reader understand that the ultimate demonstration of God's love is Jesus on the cross. If we want to understand how to love, if we want to understand genuine, real love, not self-motivated love, then we have to be turning our attention back to the cross. That's where it begins. And so do you... And really, when we, when we, sorry, when we start looking at the, the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus has made, then naturally that should lead to grace, an understanding of the grace, and that grace should lead to gratitude. If you really understand the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you, that he has died on the cross, experienced the ultimate physical and spiritual death that you deserve, then yeah, you're going to be grateful. Absolutely, absolutely. You've been, you've been purchased from a life of damnation and you've been reconciled into the household of God. If that is really what's happened to you, if you really are a child of God, then you should be incredibly grateful. And that, that gratitude is driven by love. And it's important to realize if, if you're obeying out of a sense of duty, if you are trying to do God's will because you have to, then I don't know really if you have that gratitude. I don't know if you really understand the love. I mean, a life of a Christian is tough, but it's also very joyful. It's, 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 it's so focused beyond the here and now that it provides so much reassurance for us. And I encourage you, I mean, if, if you just do the, the, the religious checklist because you have to, then you need to reassess your understanding of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And finally, this is my final point here, is, is do you yearn for his return? Because that love for the first church was completely or primarily expressed in this hopeful expectation that Jesus is going to come back. One day, Jesus will return. There's, no, there's not going to be any missing it. You read about how the scriptures describe it. He's going to be coming on the clouds, okay? It's going to be this this huge event. And for the first church, they were so focused on the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, that it framed their entire understanding of how to act here and now. And uh, if you look there in uh, in verse 28 and verse 2, or verse 28, it says, Continue in, in him, so that's a life application, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. You act this way now because later on he's going to return. And in verse 2 it says, of chapter 3, it says, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this, there's this quote I have here from Alexander McLaren. Uh, and he said... It's quite remarkable, actually, about how the the church sees uh, the second coming of Christ. But he expands on it. He says, The primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or even about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. That's an incredible perspective to have. And... It's no surprise that the first church was able to expand so quickly if you have that kind of conviction, if you have that kind of hope. And, and, and really, the, uh, 
I mean, even Paul talks about how how the present sufferings of, and this is in Romans, the present sufferings of this age are going to be are going to be completely surpassed when the, with the glory of Him returning. And what I really want to key in here and focus on is that the two elements of how His return affects our life here and now, and it provides us hope. So, uh, next slide, please. It provides us hope in the sense that the return of Jesus reveals two different things, according to this passage. And the first thing it does, it reveals the identity of Christ. Do we see that there? Uh, in uh, in uh, verse 2 of, of, of John 3, it says, we're going to see him as he is. And that's, and that might not seem super significant. You might, oh, I have a relationship with God already. I know Jesus already. I've read the Bible but really, to see him as he is. I mean, back then in the first church, like I mentioned earlier, the Gnostics were distorting, changing Jesus, giving him a new identity, twisting him. I think Sam made this point last week. He talks about, well, if that was happening back then, only a few decades after Jesus, he was already being changed. Well, how much more will it be happening now, thousands of years after the facts? And we, we hear about it all the time. People say, oh, well, Jesus didn't exist. You know, he had these elements. He was a good teacher, but nah, not really God. He was this or that. And really, I, I don't know about you guys, but when Jesus finally comes and I'm able to see him in his full glory, oh, gosh, it's going to be a great moment. There's going to be no, oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that guy. No, he's here. It's established. There's no, there's no ambiguity about his identity anymore. And it, it does remind me of, uh, and maybe even John was thinking of this as he's writing. Maybe he's thinking of the transfiguration. When he goes up on the mountain, he sees Jesus transformed. He has a clothes of white shining brilliantly. He's chilling out with Elijah and Moses. Maybe that's what John's thinking of. And it, it, it's going to be a special moment. And it's something to hope for. When his identity is fully revealed, it's, it's going to change our world. It's going to change the world completely. And the second thing I have here, if you want to go to the next slide, is it reveals the identity of God's children. So his return is going to help us see Christ more clearly, but it's also going to help us see who is God's child and who, who are not his children. And that's, that's something which is a, little, is a little bit scarier, okay? Because you don't want to, on the last day when Christ comes back, you don't want to find out you're not his child. It's not going to be positive if you're not, okay? And to, to really understand the hope that we have in, uh, in his coming, a second coming, uh, and how, how it, it, the revealing of who, who a child of God is, it's found in, uh, in verse 6 of, of the chapter. It says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And so this is talking about sinning. It's talking about how uh, it's talking about how the, it's not like individual small sins, it's talking about the pattern of sin. And this is important to note because if you, if you read the Bible, if you read, if you read Paul and Romans, I think it's Romans 7, uh, if you read the, the overall, uh, the, the, the main figures in the Bible, you start to, start to see that they don't want to sin, but it just kind of happens. These people have experienced a, a change in their lives. They've, they've met God, they've been born of God, but the sin is still present. 
I think what Paul really focuses on is that he has this internal part of him, the flesh, which is battling inside of him, which wants to sin. He now has the seed of God, it says in this passage, the seed of God, which has now been planted in him. So he has a new life in God, but he also has the old life still hanging the bounce, still kind of rearing his head every now and then. I'm sure every one of us can kind of relate to that. The pattern of your life is hopefully righteousness. It's a life which is obedient to God. But then you have these, these things that pop up. You sin, but you don't mean to sin. You, you regret it. You feel, you feel guilty about it. Uh, you, you repent. It's, it's all these things happening. But it's almost like the life of a Christian, a, a child of God, is a civil war. You have this internal battle raging within us. And the second coming of Christ completely erases that war. It fixes it all up. We, we, have, we have a choice uh, to not sin, but we, we, we sin anyway. But when Christ comes, that, that seed which is planted in us, it is at that moment we are, we are matured. Do you want to go to the next slide, please? Yeah, when Christ appears, it says that in verse 2, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. We shall take on his qualities. We shall be seen as we see him. Is that, and that civil war inside us, which reigns on and on and on, it's, it, it won't exist. I, I think of Paul when he writes to Timothy, um, obviously in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy, and he talks, about, he talks about the struggle and how hard he's finding it. And he, he gives that piece of advice to Tim, or Timothy. He says, fight the good fight. It's a battle, fight it. But what's really remarkable is that he says, you need to hold to that life, that obedience, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and what Paul is focusing on here is when Christ returns, that fight doesn't exist. When, that, when he returns, there is no more sin. Sin is ridden from the world. And the cool thing about when Christ returns, he's going to be establish, establishing or completing his kingdom. But the cool thing is when he comes, he's going to complete us. Amen. That work that Christ begun in us when he died on the cross, when he returns, it's going to be complete. It's going to be finished. And that battle is, is not always easy. It's, it, it's a challenge, but it makes it so much more easier when we know that it's going to, it's going to end one day. It's going to be a day where you don't have those sins hanging over you anymore, where you are, you are able to embrace the full purity of who God is. And that, that's, that's quite astounding stuff. John Piper, I mean, I mean, John Piper says a lot of interesting stuff, but on this topic, he uh, he. he, he I like what he says, okay? He says, the outcome is guaranteed, but the battle is real. So the battle here now is real for Christians. We need to take up that battle. We need to fight the good fight. But the outcome, if you are a child of God, is guaranteed. It's set in stone. Your name's written down, and you are, when he comes back, you're gonna be taken away, okay? It's going to be completely different for you. And so those are my three points. And just in conclusion, do you, with those three points, do you, do you embody them? Like, are, are, you, are you someone who is a follower of God? Do you obey out of love, out of desire, 
Or is it more of a duty for you? The rest of you, a week after you live today, is it going to be a, a life dedicated to self and what you want? A life of selfish ambition, uh, motivated by sin and what you can gain? Or is it something which is going to, uh, you're going to have a life which reflects that of, of your God, your Father? And I pray, I, mean, I, I beg you guys, really, is to take on those qualities. Take on those qualities, because when, when he returns one day, if you are a child of God, you, you're going to grow up really quickly. And the type of child you are determines the destination you are, you're destined for. If you're a child of God, then you're going to become an adult of God one day, a mature adult of God in heaven. But there is no more sin. But if you are a child of Satan, the devil, as John kind of points out here, then you are going, you're heading for total and complete destruction. So I, I encourage you, I mean, if, if you have some kind of, uh, if you have that pattern of sin in your life right now, and you know what sin I'm talking about, you don't have to necessarily blurt it out loud, but straight away, you know what sin I'm talking about. I pray you repent, you change, you embrace that character, character of God. Amen? How about a quick prayer, <laughs> quick prayer, I was going to say pray, but, uh, uh, and then we can enjoy some fellowship. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, yeah, I thank you so much, Lord, that you would, uh, you would adopt us into your household, that you would take us uh, as we were, uh, helpless, uh, totally lost, Lord, sinful, and, and your enemy, and that you would take us and you would make us a, a daughter or a son of God, that you would take us into your, house, into your household and you would give us the rights of a son. And I thank you so much that that was made possible. But I pray, Lord, that we, we don't lose sight of why that happens. And that we never, we never take it for granted or let it go over our heads. Uh, and that we can, we can use the, the sacrifice of your son on the cross, Lord, as fuel for living for you. And I pray, Lord, uh, as we go out into the, the world, into the rest of our lives, into the workplace, your uni, wherever it may be, Lord, that we remember that you have done everything for us. And that one day you are going to return and you are going to collect us, Lord. And what you have done on the cross what you have set in motion, uh, ultimately when you come back, Lord, it's going, to be, it's going to be finished. It's going to be complete. And I pray, Lord, that we can look forward to that completion now and forever, Lord. And I pray this all in your, in your son's precious name. Amen.